call here at 416-870-1540. Good morning, Rabbi Kaplan. Chodesh Tov. Good morning. Chodesh Tov to you and to all of our listeners. How are you today? Martin filling in for Zelda. <laughs> well, not too bad, thank you. Uh, like, uh, unlike Yitzchak, uh, I had the scales removed from my eyes over the last, yesterday and the week before at cataract surgery, and, and uh, now I'm, I see much clearer. And uh, anyways, uh, you know, uh, you know, Martin, having clarity of vision is a very, very important thing. No doubt. No doubt. There was a there was a fascinating story on the news about uh, about a a painting that's been hanging upside down for about 50 years. And the curator just discovered that the painting is hanging upside down. (laughs) And and, thousands of people have been by the, the the. to the museum to to see this painting and marveled at the painting and it turns out they were looking at something backwards <laughs> well i'm not surprised seems that's the way of the world in many cases not just art but... you know you know you know martin so often people have these old biases and and uh, mistaken attitudes that they developed in their youth and and they see everything through that prism and they're looking at the world upside down they place emphasis on things like materiality, financial gain, or, or even likes on Facebook, instead of placing emphasis on family, on real friends, and on spiritual mission, meaning, and purpose. And, and uh, you know, life's upside down because life is fleeting. And when it's all over, if a person has nothing but money, or fame or material fortune to show for themselves, what really are you left with? But if a person raises a family and leaves generations behind, if a person has dedicated his or her life to trying to help others and to live with a higher consciousness, this is uh, eternity. And it stays with you forever. Well, I guess it's like the the famous story about uh, Sir Moses Montefiore and when somebody asked him how much he was worth. Uh, that, that wasn't just uh, somebody. That was Queen Victoria. Is that, yeah. And well, it's, 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 a real, it's a real story. And, 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 he, and he said, I need a couple of days. And when he gave her the, a number, she flew, flew into a rage and she had him arrested. And she said, you don't, you don't lie to your sovereign. And later when he was able to explain himself, he said that he didn't lie. He said, you asked me, you didn't ask me how much money I have. You asked me how much I was worth. And he says, uh, you see, I was a, a free man this morning and this afternoon I'm languishing in a prison cell. So how much money I have is uh, a temporal question. At any right. given moment, a person could lose the material wealth that they have. But the tzedakah, the acts of loving kindness, and the meaningful things you do are yours forever. And so he said, you ask me how much I'm worth, that's how much I'm worth. Because that nobody could ever take away from me. Exactly. But that's basically, I mean, the way, in fact, uh, last Shabbos in Shul, our rabbi, Dugas Drosha, mentioned that story. He said there were variations of it. He said in some some it's Queen Victoria, others it's somebody else. But the idea is, is the message is, basically it's what you do with your life that makes you what is what your worth is. You know, and it actually doesn't matter who the story happened with. Right, exactly. And and, and what's most important is that the message is true. Right, exactly. Well, you know, we, uh, this week we're going into Toldos, which has so much, you know, the story of uh, the twins, 
Jacob, it was, it was uh, Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, and everything sort of continuing. Seems there's always like a sibling rivalry with Cain and Abel, and with with uh, and with Isaac and Ishmael, uh, Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers. But it, but in most cases, except for you know with uh, Cain and Abel, they certainly reconcile at the end, which is very optimistic. Oh, d- d- Jacob and Esau don't really uh, reconcile. There's a very brief point of reconciliation. And, and full reconciliation is only, only going to be achieved when the Mashiach comes. You know, you know, Esav is a, a thug. He's a murderer, a rapist, and a lot of other very not nice things. No. And that's well, not that's okay. It, you, you don't make peace. You don't make peace with evil. Yeah, but why did Yitzhak favor him? That's something I couldn't understand. I mean, if Yitzhak were the spiritual and genetic heir of Avram Avinu, of Abraham, I could understand him uh, relating to, to Esau. I mean, he was sort of, sort of more masculine, you know, with his hairy body and his, his love for hunting and such. Whereas, uh, whereas uh, Yaakov was so much superior in, spiritually and, uh, and everything. That, That's an uh, excellent question, Martin. Like, like, like Isaac, Yitzhak... Uh, you know, favor him that way. It's, a, it's an excellent question. And I, I think to answer this question, I, I'll put another question out there on here. Um, okay. we, we hear in the very beginning of the Torah portion, if you, if you read the verses with the commentary of Rashi, we hear about a pregnancy that is particularly painful. And Yaakov, Father Jacob, is, is the fetus who seems to get really excited when they pass by a yeshiva, the yeshiva of shame Ve'ever, which, by the way, is front-page news on the National Post today. <laughs> it's a whole section about yeshiva. And, and, and it's for, unfortunately, due to tragic circumstances, the, the, um, the yeshiva student who was murdered for being Jewish yesterday in, in, in Israel. So there, there's a whole section of, uh, on, on, on the front page of the National Post about yeshiva, and they mention the first yeshiva in world history is the yeshiva in Shem Ve'ever, which is the yeshiva that is spoken about in Rashi's commentary in this week's Torah portion. I, I find that quite remarkable yeah, so yeah. so Yaakov is the fetus who gets excited there and then uh, this the same fetus remember there's no sonograms and um, mother Rivka Rebecca doesn't know that she's that she's pregnant with twins the same fetus seems very excited when they pass by houses of uh, ill repute and idolatry and and she's very concerned and she goes to the son of of Noah, shame, who's still alive. She doesn't want to go to her father-in-law. I mean, uh, he, he might think, uh, this is a very bad shidduch. I, I don't know if I want a daughter-in-law like this. She, she's very uncomfortable. She goes to a stranger, and, and he brings her a message from God. And the message is, there are two nations residing in your womb. This is a multiple pregnancy. And there's going to be very different people that are born. But the obvious question is, did Esau even have a chance he seems, from conception, to be predestined as an evil person. Well, that and that doesn't seem fair. And in fact, in fact, uh, Martin, it flies in the face of an essential principle in Torah Judaism. Namely, that we are all given the freedom to choose. Nobody is forced to be righteous or wicked. Every one of us has a choice to make. Well, if we all have a choice to make, and righteousness is the byproduct of the oftentimes difficult choices and the, the path of greater resistance, how, how in heaven do we reconcile or explain the story uh, of Esau? And the Rebbe explains it in a remarkable way. The Rebbe says that Maimonides, Rambam, in, in his introduction to 
his commentary on Pirkei Avot called Shmona Prakim, the Rambam identifies two pathways in the service of Hashem. He says there is a chassid hama'ula, there's the person who is naturally pious, piety and goodness, righteousness, studiousness, meditation, kindness, compassion, these are things that come easily to him. And there are people like that. There are people who are natural bookworms or, or, or naturally more focused. And, and, and a, a, a life which is filled with sensitivity and kindness, sharing and spiritual pursuit will come easily. And then the Rambam says there's another kind of person. And in a virtuous way, he's referred to as mit gaber al yitzro, the one who overpowers his evil inclination. And the Rambam says that the latter is more virtuous because his path is one that is filled with extraordinary resistance. And by overcoming those obstacles, the righteousness that he or she engenders is far more meaningful, far superior. This, the Rebbe suggests, is exactly who Esau, Esau was. Yes, he was born with a predisposition to follow the ways of evil. And precisely because he had that predisposition, he also had to have an extraordinary Yetzatov, an amazing Neshama, an amazing soul. And he had the ability to do what was good and right. Yitzchak, Isaac, is a well digger. He doesn't see what everybody else sees. Everybody sees the surface. Everybody sees the, 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 the soil, the silt, the mud, the rocks. But Yitzchak sees beneath that. He knows that there is living water beneath it. If only he can crack through the surface and engage in a process of fracking, he'll be able to release the energy that's there. And this is what Yitzchak tries to do. He's drilling into Esav Neshama. He's trying deeply, intensely, profoundly to make Esav become who Esav can be. And had Esav been who Esav could have been, he would have been far greater than, than Yaakov. But unfortunately, it was not to be. And you know, one of the things I find most remarkable about this week's Torah portion is that Isaac or Yitzchak spends years locking horns with his wife, with Rivka. She favors Yaakov. She says, Yaakov, he's the one who's going to be the next patriarch. He will found the Jewish people. And Yitzchak says, no, absolutely not. You have it wrong. Yaakov will never be able to withstand the pressures that the world will impose on the Jewish people. He will collapse under the force of anti-Semitism and persecution. And, and challenge and difficulty, trial and travail. And Rivka says, no, no, you, you don't realize. Yaakov is, is more than what he seems to be. And, and this is a running feud that goes for decades. In the end, Yitzchak un, unknowingly bestows the blessings upon Yaakov, upon Jacob. And he essentially designates Jacob to be the one to found the nation of Israel. And then Esau walks in. And Esau throws a fit. He begins to yell and scream. And Yitzchak realizes what happens in a moment. It's so telling how he responds. Do, do you remember, Martin, what he says? He says, <laughs> Your brother has come with guile. And he's taken your blessings. And then he says, he doesn't say, Curse him. Horrible guy. I can't believe he did that. You know what he says? He says, Gam Baruch Yehiyah. May he indeed be blessed. What, what, what's going on here? And the answer is very simple. Yitzchak, Isaac, did not believe that Jacob could color outside the lines. He didn't believe he could 
venture beyond the orbit of the predictable or, or live outside the box. And he said, anybody who's going to be a goody two-shoes, just bringing the apple to the teacher every day, he'll never withstand the pressures of, of the real world. He'll never be able to found the Jewish people who have the strength, the conviction, and the tenacity to overcome centuries of unimaginable challenges. However, when he sees that Yaakov knows how to wear Esau's clothes, and when, it's, when need be, Jacob knows what to do, he says, I was wrong. My wife was right all along. Indeed, may he be blessed. What strength of character does it take for a person to be so humble, to be able to change direction in a moment when you've been, you've been outfoxed, you've been outwitted, your wife just won. And he says, Yitzchak says, she was right all along. I had it wrong. Yaakov is the one. Gam Baruch I, I, I think that's so meaningful. It's so enlightening. Oh, very much. Oh, there's a lot there. You know, it's, and one of the things that struck me from what you're saying is, is the contrast between, between uh, Yitzhak and Avram. And Avram, right away, he, he allowed Sarah to convince him to, to get rid of, of Ishmael and, and Hagar. Uh, I mean, eventually he remarried her. But, but let, let, let me just interrupt you, Martin. He, yeah. he doesn't really acquiesce to Sarah until God tells him to. But by the way, you know, people who, lo- who like to point fingers at uh, Torah Judaism and call it chauvinistic are, are so out to lunch. Oh, you know, that's for sure. Be- because, because, you know, what kind of chauvinist would record a story like this where the patriarch, the founder of the Jewish nation, Abraham, is told, your wife is smarter. She knows right. better. <laughs> you, you listen to her. And then the next generation, it's, it, there's a, a, a running feud between the patriarch and the matriarch. And the matriarch wins, and the patriarch has got egg all over his face, and he says, "You're right, you're right." Like, like that's chauvinistic, right? Yeah, exactly. This is, and that, I mean, the, the supposition is is patently ridiculous, and of course, yeah, makes no sense. I mean, look, we had Devorah, you know, and uh, you know, a lot of women, Ruth, I mean, you know, so many women who are heroes, and. Uh, as a, as I, but I'm talking about before those heroes. I, I'm, I'm talking about from the yeah, very I mean, genesis of, of the development of our nation. Yeah, exactly. And another thing, I remember uh, when I was in, in Cheder, where I grew up, we didn't have uh, you know we didn't have day schools and things. We went to Cheder in the basement of the shul after after regular school. And uh, I remember one of the rabbis who was teaching uh, saying that Avram knew all the mitzvahs and observed them before they were given to us. Is, is, is that correct? That is absolutely correct, Martin. And your your teachers have taught you well. And you have preserved their lessons and, and absorbed them. Our sages tell us that Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham and Sarah, kept all of the mitzvot before the mitzvot were given. And the question, of course, is how did he know what the mitzvot would be? And can that be taken in its most literal fashion? And the answer, of course, is no. It can't be taken in its most literal fashion. How did Avraham Avinu have tefillin? Tefillin have... Are uh, our, our, our black boxes made of leather that have portions of the Torah that tell the story of the Exodus, but there was no Jewish people yet. And, and Avraham Avinu observed Pesach and he ate matzah, but then again, there has been no nation and certainly no slavery mm-hmm. and, and no Exodus. So, so it means, proverbially speaking, on a spiritual level, all of the ideas that today comprise the 613 mitzvahs or the entire picture of what we call Yiddishkeit, all of this was observed in some way by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. It doesn't mean they literally 
fulfill the mitzvahs in the most uh, actual, technical, or literal iteration. But, but it means the, 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 the spirit of the mitzvah was fulfilled. And, and of course, that doesn't work for us today. One cannot say, I fulfilled a mitzvah on a, on a spiritual level. Well, you know, we have instructions from God, and we have to follow the rules as the Torah sets it out for us. Well, you know, you just answered my next question. As what, what I was going to say is uh, you know, that Avraham must have kept kosher, and uh, but Yitzchak did, because you know he hates it. I mean, the hunter when you hunt, shoot an animal with an arrow, that can't be kosher. Well, well that, that that you know, I'm glad you're mentioning that, and that's that's factually incorrect. He doesn't tell him to hunt with an arrow. He tells him to sharpen his knives. And uh-huh. and and what happens is is that that, that Yitzchak taught Esav Esau how to slaughter. And he was an expert shochet. Okay. Remember that 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 Esau did not look like a, a member of Hell's Angels. No. He he masqueraded as a very pious and righteous person. He looked probably much more like a rabbi and a chassid than than, than a member of, a, of 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 some kind of a mafia biking club. Right. <laughs> he 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 would ask his father all kinds of intricate halachic questions. So it isn't as if he. He, he presented as a criminal and the thug that he was, he presented as a pious individual. He probably showed up in a black hat or a strimal and, 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 and claimed to be very pious when in fact he was a rapist and a murderer. And you know, there, there's people who behave like this even in our day and age. And I say this with great shame and chagrin, but not everybody who looks pious or religious is. And it's in a very, very unfortunate thing. Unfortunately, you're right. I've uh, come across some of that. And uh, which which I found you know very very disappointing, very downletting. But uh, you know, at the same time, you know, find people who who are not particularly outwardly religious and such, but but basically, you know, are decent human beings. They follow at least the Noahite laws, anyhow. You know, you could you can uh, you can put a black hat on an orangutan. It doesn't make him a chassid. <laughs> That's very very true. Clothes do not make the person. No, uh, absolutely not. A- actions. Actions are what are what are meaningful. The, the kind the kind of language we use, the words that we employ, the way we utilize the gift of speech and communication. Oh, excuse me, Rabbi Kaplan. It seems that we've got a caller in line. Somebody wants to ask you or, or comment on what you've been saying. John, who have we got here? You got Rachel, and I have a question for Rabbi Kaplan. Yes, Rachel. Okay. It says when the three angels came to uh, uh, Abraham to tell him that Sarah is going to have a child, yeah. that Abraham went and got a calf and slaughtered him and brought meat and dairy and milk and butter. It's an excellent question, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna precipitate your, the rest of your question. If he kept the Torah and mitzvahs, how would he eat meat and milk? So let me tell you a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't say he cooked them together. The Torah prohibits the cooking of milk and meat. But he served them. It yes, he served milk first. Milk, one is technically permitted to eat meat. You don't have to wait after eating meat. Number one. Number two, Abraham's guests weren't Jewish. And one has no right to impose their own stringencies on other people. So here we have uh, pagan individuals who Avraham Avinu hoped to teach about God, not make religious Jews, but rather Noahides, people who would follow the codes that had been given 
to Adam and Eve, and then later on completed with Noah. And keeping kosher is not one of those things. So Abraham had his own personal stringencies. But when you have a guest, don't impose your value system over them. Give them what they like and enjoy. And we know that one of the delicacies for uh, ancient Bedouins was milk and meat. Avram, of course, wouldn't cook it together, but he gave them the option of eating as they pleased. And I think that's a very, very profound and important lesson in hospitality. Hospitality is not what you like, it's what your guests like. And that's why the Torah conveys a message of hospitality that on the surface seems perplexing. And, and, and it provoked your question. Yes, you know, the Torah can never be perused or read. It must always be studied. And nothing is simple about the Torah. So a lay person like you should ask questions. And a rabbi like me should endeavor to explain and to answer those questions. And the good news is that the more we delve into the Torah, the more we begin to appreciate its profundity and its beauty. And, 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 and the extraordinary amount of endless layers that Torah uh, brings us, as uh, King Solomon said in his wisdom, uh, apples of gold wrapped in filigree of silver. And the silver is beautiful. And then you peel away the silver and you find the gold. And then you continue to look into layer upon layer of our holy Torah. And you see how what appears on the surface to be simplistic or even perplexing is actually incredibly enlightening and uplifting. The Torah is relevant in every time and in every place and for every person. And as such, it'll never be easy to decode its messaging. It'll never mimic the popular language or diction or syntax of a particular civilization or culture. And it always will seem to be out of sorts. It isn't simple. Even if a even if a prophet, a prophet, not God, even if a prophet comes to us and tells us to violate the Torah temporarily, we're required to do so. The most famous example of that is Elijah, who brings an offering, a korban, outside of Yerushalayim, which is a direct violation of the Torah. But when Elijah the prophet tells us, this is what God wants us to do today, then we have to listen to him. So when Avraham Avinu gets a direct command from God, that's not a custom he's adopting. That's not a, a prophetic intuition about what the Jewish people might do in the future. He has a commandment from God. He has to listen to the best of his ability, which he does. And that's exactly what God wanted him to do. He wanted to demonstrate that Avraham Avinu was ready to do anything God would ask. And of course, God never wanted a human sacrifice. But how's Avraham to know that? This is not an interpretation, though. That is, that is direct 
and overt. It's clear in the Torah. It's clear in the Torah. So Avram Avinu couldn't argue back and say, well, God, I have this prophetic intuition and I've kind of been told that human sacrifices are not going to be permitted. So how could you tell me to do this? And the most amazing thing about Avram is that he responds to God without a moment's hesitation. And he simply says, Hineni, I am ready to do whatever God tells me to do. And that's one of the most profound lessons of the Akedah. It's not what Avram was prepared to do. It's how he was prepared to do it. As the Talmud says, it was his alacrity, his enthusiasm, his zeal, and his willingness and readiness to do exactly what Hashem wanted that must serve as an inspiration, an example for us today. You're welcome, Rachel. Uh, keep asking questions. Keep studying Torah. I, I want to share with you and with all of our listeners that I've, uh, Baruch Hashem, been successful in putting a website together with all of my classes. And I address many, many of these questions in them. It's called RabbiKaplan.tv. It, it'll, uh, it's a clearinghouse that takes you into a number of different platforms with over 2,000 uh, classes, lectures, and, and episodes that, that can help people to appreciate the profundity and the beauty of our holy Torah in our day and age. Thank you. Uh, but also, as said to me, Rabbi Kaplan, uh, what would be, what is, how do we get to your website? Uh, you go online. Rabbi Rabbi Kaplan dot, dot TV. Rabbi, no, not Rabbi Mendel. Rabbi You know, uh, Martin, we just have a couple of uh, minutes left before. Yeah. So I, I, I want to conclude um, by taking a moment to mention that today, Rosh Chodesh Kislev, is a very, very special day for Hasidim. In 1977, during the Hakafot on Shemini Yatzeresiv, the Rebbe suffered a devastating heart attack. And, and this was followed the next morning by an even more devastating heart attack. As I understand it, there was no pulse for over seven minutes. And uh, that the Rebbe survived this it was miraculous in and of itself. But as, as the Rebbe's personal cardiologist, Dr. Weiss, revealed many years later that the most optimistic of prognoses, if he would survive, uh, saw the Rebbe, a feeble old man, um, taking copious naps, walking around on a cane, and um, really functioning as a shadow of his former self. Now, I have to tell you, uh, Martin, I have the, the privilege, the zechut, of being a young man growing up in those 17 years, seeing the Rebbe's fervor and enthusiasm and stamina and strength that was astounding with tire people who were in their teens and nobody could keep up with the Rebbe. And this was seen publicly where the Rebbe would at the end of a Yom Tov lead a Fabrengen sometimes for as long as four to five hours speaking extemporaneously and, and acknowledging every person in the crowd in between the talks with unfatiguing energy. And then after that, um, making Havdalah, and then standing on his feet and distributing wine from his Kiddush cup to thousands of people. This would go from 6 p.m. in the evening, sometimes till 4 a.m. in the morning. A marathon of 10 incredible hours. I saw this with my own eyes time and time again. A miracle in our times. And, 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 and the, Rebbe's, the Rebbe's restoration... I had no question to you that the Rebbe's emotion Moshe Rabbeinu of our time. The Rebbe's, the Rebbe's re, the restoration of the Rebbe's health in those miraculous 17 years, which set in motion everything that the Chabad movement is and continues to be today, is celebrated on Rosh Chodesh, 
Kislev, because that's when the Rebbe left his room for the first time to go home. And uh, today, we this year, we have a double day, a two-day Yom Tov, so to speak, of Rosh Chodesh Kislev. And, you know, we, we uh, Hasidim, thank Hashem for the miracle of the Rebbe's person, for this incredible gift to humanity. And, and during these years, the Rebbe launched what continues to be the the amazing presence of, of the Chabad movement. When I started attending the Kinnas HaShluchim, as I mentioned on, on the air a couple of days ago, it, there, there were just over a thousand shluchim. I was privileged to be at the conference of shluchim this year, and we had over 5,460 shluchim present. And where there was less than a thousand institutions at the, at the time of the Rebbe's terrestrial passing, today there are 3,000 vibrant institutions. You know, I remember in 1977, seeing the printed page of Lubavitch institutions worldwide. In 1977, there were less than 40 addresses around the world. Today, there are more than 40 addresses in Toronto. In Toronto alone, thousands and thousands and thousands. And this is not an exaggeration of, 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 of institutions that touch the lives of millions. This is the eternity of the Rebbe's life. This is the way he continues to live on in a very, very real and palpable way. And uh, this is uh, what we celebrate today in Rosh Chodesh Kislev. We say, We thank Hashem for His kindness. We thank Hashem for gracing us with the towering presence of the Rebbe's leadership and Torah teachings. And, um, you know, uh, Martin, all I can say is that uh, my wife and I and all of our colleagues the rabbis and rebbitsons serving Jewish communities around the world are, are, are standing committed to continue to move forward, to advance the Rebbe's program of education, of, of social wellness, and of outreach to every single Jew and ultimately to the entire world, to every human being, to bring the world into its destined state of perfection the coming of Mashiach, a time in which the entire universe will be awash in the awareness of the Creator, a time in which there will be peace and prosperity, fulfillment and happiness, a wonderful new world that we hopefully are going to experience very, very soon and in our time with the coming of Mashiach. Every time we take a few moments to study Torah, every time we we perform a mitzvah and behave in a way that is pious, and kind in a way that is spiritual and sensitive, we are hastening the arrival of Mashiach. May it be bimheira obi ameno speedily, and in our days, amen. Thank you for the opportunity to share words of Torah and inspiration on the airwaves and and on Facebook, which we've been streaming live. And uh, I hope that very soon, on social media platforms and on airwaves and and television uh, broadcasts around the world, we'll be hearing the good news that Mashiach has finally come and we finally have crossed the finish line of a very long journey. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi Kaplan, and God willing, we'll speak to you again tomorrow. And now we've got uh, Sonny Goldstein on the line. Thank you for joining, everybody. Have a beautiful day.